I'm Chris Reback. This is the premiere episode of The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. Today's understanding of the science of human development and learning is incredibly optimistic about what is possible for all children. That's because there's so much scientific knowledge now that we didn't have when many of the systems that serve children in and out of school were designed. For example, today we know that talent is not distributed along a bell curve. What if we were to apply this new knowledge in new ways? What untapped potential might we see and unleash? As the global workforce undergoes a once-in-a-century transformation, as existing economic paradigms are being reconsidered, wouldn't it make sense to also reconsider our inputs into that workforce? The way we recognize talent and help all children grow and learn? Exploring how to get there is this podcast's mission, so let's get to it. Given that mission, it should come as no surprise that our inaugural conversation is with Todd Rose. Rose is the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he also leads the Laboratory for the Science of the Individual. He's also the co-founder of Populous, a nonpartisan think tank dedicated to equipping all people to live fulfilling lives in an open and thriving society. Rose is also the author of The End of Average and, most recently, Dark Horse, Achieving Success Through the Pursuit of Fulfillment. As Rose writes, To build a great and thriving society, we must get the best out of everyone, no matter who you are or where you're starting from. We're entering a new epic, he writes, demanding a very different formula for success. Todd, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'll start with a question that essentially asks you to wrap up your lifetime of research into one response. That, that shouldn't be too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> what is talent and what makes you believe we all have it? I think talent is a person's ability to convert their motives and values along with their aptitudes into something that is meaningful and valuable to society. And that the reason I think everybody has it is from the science I'm a part of, which is the science of individuality, it's really clear just not only how diverse the sort of skill set and value set is that people bring to the table, but that when you look at how that could be converted into value for society, there's so many diverse ways for that to be true um, that it, it's hard to imagine that any particular individual doesn't have a combination of values and skills that can't be put to use for society in a meaningful way. And I think that the only reason it doesn't look like that is that we've decided in advance that talent is a bell curve and that there's one standardized way to develop it. And when you do that, Surprise, surprise, talent looks like a bell curve. And are our systems aligned, and not even just aligned, but, but designed to look at talent that way and to measure it and to then reward it and to deliver the next level of opportunities? It's, yeah, it's more fundamental. Like I say, so the, <clears throat> I think the most important thing, and it, it's, it's part of what I've worked on and in, in, in the books that I've written is are largely about where did this idea of like talent scarcity come from? Like how did, how did we get here? And it's really based on, like we made a set of assumptions about 150 years ago that human beings uh, were, could be stacked in terms of a bell curve that, and on any, any characteristic you cared about. And importantly, that the idea that the average person was a meaningful thing, 
right? And that would just compare ourselves to the average person. And so we've done that in all of our society, right? We do it in education to this day. Um, we do it when we hire people. Um, we even do it in healthcare. So now we have this average-based world that is standardized to have one right way. There's one right way to educate. There's one right way. There's a, a career ladder, <laughs> like literally, right? Yeah. Like one way forward. And well, guess what? Now we just have to, we know that, we know those assumptions weren't true. Like we know it scientifically. We know it mathematically. Like it's just not true. There's no average person. It doesn't work that way. Um, but what you've noticed in fields that have had to make this jump already, so say medicine, like nobody's doing average-based medical research anymore. That that doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. And so you get all this improvement in personalized medicine, personalized nutrition, these kind of things. <clears throat> but it took really, it wasn't just as simple as like, maybe cancer looks different than this average pathway. You had to get rid of these flawed assumptions that underpin that, right? And when you did, then you got all the breakthroughs. And I think that in the space of education specifically, but then talent in general, we haven't made that jump yet, right? So on the one hand, you could say, look, there's some cool things going on. And if only we just have a better example or a better test. But as long as people hold these assumptions about talent, right? And about potential, those those little small wins are never going to combine into that avalanche you need to sort of tip the scales and have a whole different system. There is, as you know and you have written, a standard formula for success, and then there is a dark horse formula. Um, what's the, what's the <laughs> standard? Right. Yeah, what, tell me, what are those two? People have no problem saying, first of all, it's, it's, it's comparative, right? I'm, you're successful because you're better than somebody else. Um, and then it's like zero sum, right? So like, um, for me to win, you have to lose, or at least somebody has to lose. So the, the formula for that is sort of like, um, be the same as everyone else, only better. <laughs> like I have to play by the same rules, do these things, take the same tests, do these things. I just have to do a little better than you. Um, now <clears throat> that has dominated the American landscape. And, and I'm only speaking in the country because that's where most of our research is. I, I, I don't want to over overstate for the rest of the world, but, but um, that has been the dominant view of success for most of the industrial era. And, the cool thing is that a majority of Americans now reject that. They, they don't want that. 60% of people across all demographics, um, and it, it doesn't have a, even a huge age, age skew. It's like really remarkably robust shift where they know this is how society is built, and they don't want it anymore. Yeah, that, that, the definition of, su- definition of success is, is yeah. much they, more based on individual definitions and individual mm-hmm. experiences. So basically when – when the American public responds, what they say is like, I still want to, I got to pay the bills. I still want money. Who doesn't want that? That's, that's not, yep. that's fine. Yep. I want to, I want to accomplish things. I don't want to just sit back, but then they use words like meaning and purpose and fulfillment. They're like it matters that they're doing things that matter to them. Right. And, and so I set that up to say, um, the, the dark horse aspect of this was it, this came off of a project at Harvard that I was doing that just like serendipitously ends up converging around the same thing. What I found was I kept running into pretty amazing people, surprise, surprise, right? And these people who were there doing great things often had these really interesting, non-traditional paths to getting there. And I just kind of filed that away as like, that's curious, right? That's interesting. And so then I, I, after the success of End of Average, I was like, well, wait a minute. I want to know more about like these people. Like how, how did they, how did they have success in these? Like no one really saw them coming, right? These dark horses. And so we did this like, like really large study. It was my first qualitative research. We we did hundreds of people from all walks of life. 
And I thought, just full disclosure, I, I, mean, I was just wrong about what the point of all it was. I, I thought that it would be that, like, to be a dark horse you ha- and, and follow that view of success, like, that you would have to be, like, kind of like a Steve Jobs, like, personality. Like, you don't care what anyone thinks. Like, you kind of like bucking the system, right? Um, and instead, what we found is, like, actually, what made people get off on these individual paths is that they prioritize personal fulfillment, that's their view of success. It's very personal. Again, they're they're fiercely ambitious, right? It's not like a like a hippie kind of thing. Like, but it's like they know who they are. They they use this to prioritize like what matters to me, and then they go after it. And of course, in a standardized system where there's no real average person, um, it's not surprising that a standardized path is not really going to do it for most people. It is about harnessing your individuality in the pursuit of fulfillment to achieve success. We teased out there are like four things that they knew like very consistently that allowed fulfillment to be actionable, right? Like these are things that we all could know and like help us get out of this standardized mindset and into a place where we can truly use our individuality to make a contribution to the world. The standardized approach to success existed at a time when standardization, and you just talked about the industrial era, was that was our our system. That's that was finance. That was trade. That was that was commerce. That was how the world ran. We seem to be in a different age, and it would seem that a different age calls for a different mindset. What's your view? I don't think most people wake up and say, you know, I wish I could give up who I really am and become a cog, right? Mm. Like, but if you tell me it's either like mass depressions and like unemployment and like barely scraping by, or it's like the kind of incredible material wealth we've generated through standardization, even I would take that, right? Like, like yeah. I'll, I'll be the cog and I'll go work at Ford factory and I can have a house and a car and, and, and a retirement. And then I'll figure out fulfillment on the side. Right. I do think to your point earlier, like as, as our, as so much of our society has moved with, with the access to like both technology and big data and other things, right? Like Notice how every time a field gets disrupted like that, it always moves towards something more personalized. Always. Like, without fail. Right? Because it's real signal. It's real information. Like, there's a reason why Amazon does what they do to generate recommendation engines that, that are incredibly personalized. Right? Because it, it can convert you into another cell much better than if I treat you as, like, well, you're a man and you're a certain age. And, like, you know. So so I think that that the exposure to what's possible now right, has allowed people to start to question whether, like, there can be something different, right? And if we can do it in social media, we can do it in commerce, we can do it in health, we can start to see it in education. Why do I have to be locked into a particular view of success that never felt right to me, right? But I, I didn't know what else. And I think, I think the, now the breakthrough is, and, and this is the work that my think tank does, is like, you will not get these systems to tip until that culture realizes like there is a majority that really wants this now um, and we can demand it. And as soon as you get that, like things will move in a hurry. So you're, you're describing a world where the culture is shifting. Maybe you just said it's not there yet and that, you know, we'll tip when it, it gets there, but, and, 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 but it's, let's stipulate that that's coming. Um, we, yeah. you, you describe a world where there's the end of average whether that is uh, the size of, uh, you know, Air Force pilots in cockpits in the 1940s mm-hmm. or the way our brains uh, hold memory and, and, you know, there's yeah. no average brain. You describe a world of the dark horse 
individuality and and the the de- definitions of fulfillment and and the direction that all of that's going. You just mentioned education. When you consider the paradigm that you outlined, the this world life view that that you talk and and write about, and then you look at our current system to educate children, are they aligned? No, I mean, like like you almost couldn't design a system to be worse at what we want now. I know why we have the system we have. And the truth is, is like, again, back in the day, this was a question of, did we do really personal education for a few people or were we willing to like mass educate everyone? If you're going to do that, then how do you do that scale? Right. And you've got scale through depersonalization. So I'm grateful for what it's done and where it got us. But now it is, it is an incredible barrier um, to people being able to live good lives. Like, I don't think anyone's satisfied with the state of education right now. Um, for me, I, I come at it from a systems change perspective. I mean, that's my training. And I think that like, for me, the kind of change that this calls for is not reform, right? It's, it's actually like, we're, we're aiming to transform these systems, meaning we want a different purpose, right? We're not okay with the, with like the, the goal has always been to batch process and rank kids. Right. And, 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 you know, if you're, if you lean a little left, you say, well, let's make sure we do it as fair as possible. Right. But no one ever questioned that only some people have talent. We need to rank everyone because not everyone can be developed. I think what we're calling for right now is the transformation of public education to be about developing each and every kid. And when you acknowledge that it has this incredible set of ramifications for the structure and function of schools as they exist. Can you start to describe what that structure and function might look like? Maybe early childhood learning, what does this look like? Elementary school, what does it look like? Yeah. High school, you, 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 tell me what it looks like. Sure. So there's there's a handful of things that will be true no matter what. If you want a system that develops every kid, right? The first thing that has to go is the way we measure, like like right now in education, it's seat time. It's just, it's literally called the Carnegie unit. That's how everything's measured. And what's variable is learning, right? Like, <laughs> like fixed amount of time. And then that time is up and it's kind of arbitrary, right? Who picked how long you get to do this? And then we give you a grade. And if you don't fail, we make you go on, right? But like the best predictor of how well you'll do in any one subject is how well you did with the subject before. <laughs> like, so, so background knowledge matters a lot. So a kid that gets like a C minus is just going to have trouble in the next class, right? So there's a whole approach to learning called mastery-based learning, right? It's We've got 40 years of research on it. We know how to do it. It's setting high standards and then embedding as much flexibility in time and, 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 and approach as you can. It's not unlimited, right? There are real constraints. But when you do that, when you make time the variable, what happens is learning becomes the, the sort of fixed thing. Like it's pretty remarkable that what one kid can do, most kids can do academically if given the right like highly favorable environment. So this shift toward true mastery-based learning is like non-negotiable. Like it's just mm-hmm. unacceptable to give a fixed amount of time and then rank kids. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And no parent is really okay with that. If, you know, I, my kids in college right now and like they, they, these in class, I'm like, Oh, I'm not learning very much, but I have to sit through this. And then like, then they give them a forced curve and I'm like, wait, I'm paying for this. Like <laughs> all I want to know is, did you master the material? Right. So you can not live in my basement when you're done. Right. But, um, so, so mastery based learning, non-negotiable, right? Like the, the other thing is that, um, 
whether we like it or not, we're going to have to cede some control to the kids. And I don't mean like Lord of the Flies, like kids get to do whatever they want. What I mean is like part of what you want kids to look like when they're graduated is they've got to be self-directed, right? Like they have to be able to be in charge of their lives. They've got to make decisions for themselves. Well, it would then stand a reason that um, one of the goals of education would be to help kids learn how to do that, right? But that's not at all what we do, right? Like we're, we're really obsessed about like trying to eke out better performance on narrow metrics we've decided matter. But like if all you care about is test scores, helping kids be more self-directed, having more autonomy is not a very good idea, right? Like take as much control as you can from them, probably put them in front of a computer and <laughs> an adaptive algorithm and you can get better test scores. So there's an aspect of autonomy where we have to think about, right? And that differs at different ages. But like, look, we've got to get, give kids some control there. Um, the other third thing is really about the design of the environment itself, right? So you kind of referenced some some of my earlier work and, and the past work on like flexible design and, you know, the Air Force figures out that like <laughs> you have to, you can't design cockpits for an average person. Well, like you can't design classrooms that way either. You can't design textbooks that way, but we do. So education is still the last industry that it actually incentivizes average-based design. Nobody else does. So all the money we spend, I mean, massive amounts of money on textbooks and curricular materials, they literally, they call it age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate. And all it means is if it's a fourth-grade piece of material, it's, well, what's the reading level of an average fourth-grader? And, you know, how much vocabulary do they know? And they assume that about every kid, which is just insane, right? Now, that flexible design, we already know how to do it. There's a thing called the universal design for learning. It's in federal law. You can do it. But it, it extends even that design even to more into stuff that my friend Pam Cantor is a leader on too, which is like, as we realize how profoundly important context is, right? That these kids don't exist in a vacuum. And it, it, it's nice to pretend that they have some innate stuff inside them and it doesn't matter where they come from. It's just not true. And that we, when we think about what highly favorable conditions look like, you know, we have to think about things like trauma and adversity uh, and other factors that we tend to think are really just about some kids, right? Um, and we don't really think about what goes into those great environments. So I know that sounds like a mouthful, you know, mastery, autonomy, like these these better designed environments. The good news is, while it's, while it's not easy, nothing I've said is brand new. Like nothing is mm -hmm. waiting for a new innovation, we actually know how to do all of those things. And so like if the public wanted it and enough of the public spoke up, you could have these schools tomorrow. So let me ask two pushback questions and this issue and this, this idea of personalized learning experiences. Um, first one, how in the world do you do that at scale? So here's what's great. Whenever we carry over, like whenever we think about the stuff I just talked about, it seems like, well, that sounds nice, but like, it's definitely not practical. Then it's certainly not doable. Cause like, how would you scale it? Right. This is the important thing about technology. So technology is not the solution, but it is a tool. And like, it is the limiting factor on almost everything you can do like ever. Right. Um, textbooks are a tool or a technology, right? So are pencils. Um, the beauty of digital technologies is their ability to be precise at the individual level and incredibly flexible at scale. Right. So you think about like, well, if you would have told me not too long ago that we could bring everybody in the world together to have communications and be able to translate their language in real time through Google Translate, that seems impossible, right? Like that just seems like fairy tale, right? 
but we can, right? And and yeah. and so the beautiful thing about this, when especially in education, is if you design a really good, flexible environment, a curriculum, whatever, scale is pretty cheap. I mean, it's not nothing, mm. but but it's not it's not it's not it's like a textbook where basically there's just there's just fixed costs, right? Like it just costs a certain amount to this. Your ability to scale these things, and and I will say, um, I think the best example of this is frankly. Uh, the work with Summit Learning, right? The, the the things that CZI is investing in, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Yeah, my in, friend in California, Tavner, California and Washington. Yeah, right? yeah. And and here's the thing: so those Summit Learning schools, which are phenomenal, like I would put my kid in one in a heartbeat, that, that that embody everything we're talking about. So what when they partner with Chan Zuckerberg, what they're building is this backend technology with all the curricular materials for free. And I think I think they're in like 40 states right now. But this idea is that like any school who wants to do this will be able to do it if they want to. And that segues to my second pushback question. You mentioned that education was the last industry to kind of come to an acceptance of of personalization and and individual approach. Why? What is it about education where the factors are so entrenched? The revolution that you're looking for, man, is it just too much? Yeah. So no. But I'll, I'll tell you why I'm super hopeful. And I, I might sound overly optimistic, but I, I think I'm a, I think I'm actually a realist. I just think positively. First of all, the reason education is the last to go, in my mind, has more to do with market forces, right? It's not a market, right? It, it, it's a, it's a state-run monopoly. K, like K through twelve, yeah, you have some private schools, you have some like this, but like you don't have the market forces that are so important to pick up on changing preferences and changing interests. Like, so think about all the places that have already gone, right? So like social media, fine, whatever, but commerce, right? Why, why, why do these places invest so heavily in this? Well, first of all, because it works. Even if you treated education as business, it's, you lose money for every customer you have. So it's not, it's like a lot of these things don't really work there in the same way. Even if you want to do say a charter school, you're still tied to the outcomes that the system cares about. You know, at the end of the day, no matter what else you do, you still have to produce outcomes that they value. And so I think it limits the, the, the potential for innovation. Um, I also think that education is the industry that's closest tied to our views of success, right? It's mm. really, really value laden. The way you get change, this transformative change, it can't be enough for me to selfishly just want it, right? What, cause you're asking to change public systems, right? Which means that what matters is how I see other people. Right. Like if I if I see you as a competitor and I see you as maybe not worth investing in then for me to say, like, yeah, let's change the system. I'm like, no, I'm going to figure out how to get my thing. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's always a better way. So it's really ultimately about how we're going to come to see each other and and that, that view of talent and potential. Like if, if we see each other as worth investing in and that it's better for us that you win, like better for me that you win, then we can get something. We know from our own data that. That 60% has some really remarkable characteristics to them. Um, first among them is they have a very positive some view of success, meaning when, when we ask them, does somebody have to lose for you to win? Not only do they say no, but they actually think that they, they benefit if other people live fulfilling lives, mm. right? And when we ask them about talent, this is where it gets just really cool. When we say, we, we asked people in multiple survey after multiple survey, like what percentage of the American public do you think is even innately capable of being successful in their lifetime? 
there's a zero sum group. It's only that, that little group is tiny. The one that you think is everybody is like 17%. Wow. It's a tiny group. It's wow. incredible. Yeah. That group, when you ask them what percentage of the public is, can be successful, they say 10%. I mean, like, holy cow, then, then yeah, if you thought 10, only 10% of people could be successful, then build the system we built that's about selection, right? And you should. The fulfillment group, remember that 60%, that, that, that solid majority puts that number at 80%. Wow. They, they believe 80% of their fellow citizens can be successful. And when we ask them, why only 80%? And we ask the zero sum group, why only 10%? They said, it's only 10% because of talent. There's, people just aren't talented. Right? So, so we're kind of done, right? Mm. If that's why you think there can only be 10%, f- the fulfillment group, that 60% who thinks that 80% of the people are talented, the number one barrier for them is opportunity. That's why I think it's only 80%. So why that matters, why all those kind of numbers matter is you've got a majority of Americans who believe in a different view of success that's more about fulfillment and making a contribution, and they believe that other people are capable as well, Okay. That group is also the most frustrated with education of any group, no matter how you cut it. There's no demographic that is actually more frustrated with public education than people who have a fulfillment view of success. Mm. So why this is exciting to me, if 60% of the American public believes this new view of success, and we live in a democracy and a market economy, why is this not the public view? Really? Mm-hmm. Why, that, that's a fair question, right? So we dug into that. That 60%. We asked them, what percentage of their fellow citizens do you think also share your view of success, right? They think they're a 5% minority. Wow. They think 95% of their fellow citizens still want the zero-sum view. And so they're unwilling to even say it out loud. Like, they won't even tell their best friends what their view is because they don't think people understand. They'll think you're soft, you can't compete. Now, the reason that's actually good, right, is there's a whole field in economics and social theory called preference falsification, which is when public opinion is different than private opinion, right? That gap. If, if it were the case that right now everybody wanted zero sum, well, this game is over. Like, there's nothing I can do. I can't change culture. I can't come. It's like converting them to a new religion. <laughs> like, you kind of, but the fact that we know that a majority of Americans are not saying out loud the thing they most deeply, deeply want, right? Means that the game is basically how do we use social proof to show them that actually this, they are a majority. And as they start to like say out loud, like as you say it publicly, there, there's this bandwagoning effect, right? Where other people are like, oh, wait, okay, yeah, no, no, that's, that's me too. And it just, it just snowballs, right? Yeah. So our work is largely about socializing this, right? We're, we're working with Hollywood to put this language into TV shows and movies. We're building the success index. But like, so that's why I'm excited. If you get the American public to realize that the majority actually wants this. Well, and you work with these systems to try to start moving toward this direction. Like it's possible, right? It's not, it's not guaranteed, but I look at this and think, wait, there's no, in, there's no new invention that we need, right? We have all the pieces. Like now we just got to put them together. You're describing a revolutionary social movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what, what's great is look, we live in a democracy and market economies. Like the majority gets what they want if they can say it with one voice. Hmm. And so let's do it. It all forces you to rethink everything. All of a sudden, colors look different than they did before. And one of the ideas that you really made me think about redefining is equal opportunity. 
and that the whole concept of you know equal opportunity historically has meant equal access. Uh, we could probably have a whole conversation on the old definition, the existing definition of meritocracy, and all of the things that the people who have <laughs> made it through are doing to reduce actual access to meritocracy and and in pulling up yeah. the ladders, as opposed to the concept that you talked about of equal fit. Equal access is always important, right? So if you don't have access to something, that, that, that it's over, right? Um, yeah. And let's just use like the cockpit sort of analogy. So when you designed a, a system around an average, like the first thing you figured out was that like a lot of women just simply couldn't fit. They just couldn't, right? And so we realized, well, look, it's not our fault. We just designed this thing and like you don't fit. We're not discriminating. It just doesn't fit. But like, so you can't even access it, right? But now, now let's take it a step further and realize, okay, but if our goal is to allow you to have the best chance. So it's purely about effort and ability, right? Like if that's the thing we're after, then just allowing you to like get into a cockpit that like, you know, you can barely reach the pedals and like, you know, you're like, well, we didn't, we didn't kick you out because you right in. And then there's someone for whom it is like literally the snuggest perfect fit, right? Like the person with the good fit, it really is about effort and ability now, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that is, that is the driver of like how far you're going to go. And the person that literally has to have like blocks on their feet to reach them, and by that's a real thing. Like as we say, like yeah. women who are trying to be pilots, like you are, you are, like you're having to overcome an obstacle that's that's artificial, right? And so, for me, when we think about this new view of what equal opportunity really means in an age of personalization, you have to have access, but but it has to be access to equal fit. Let's go into education, right? So a kid comes in, and through no fault of their own, whatever their background, whatever. They're behind a grade in reading, right? And we're like, yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's third grade and this is the reading level. Well, how is that equal fit, right? And especially now you're in a science class. We're like, we already know you're, we already know you're a struggling reader. And it's like, we don't, we don't feel any obligation to create an adaptive system that's like, look, we can meet you where you're at. We know you're a struggling reader, but that doesn't have to impair your ability to learn science, right? So there are tools, there's stuff already available. And I've been lucky to be a part of building some of them in the past, that for free, we were able to create like multiple reading levels, adaptive stuff, language translation, text to speech, everything. So that like, no matter what your background, no matter what you want to call your jagged profile, like we can create the exact same fit for every kid and make it about effort, ability, and interest. Todd, I want to close by asking about you because you are not just a uh, researcher scientist asking questions of others um, but you got here to a great extent through your own personal journey if I were talking to the <laughs> 17 year old you the, the one who dropped out of high school or the yeah. 20 year old you the one who you know had two kids already would that person have believed that you do what you do now, that you think the way you think now. What, what would that person think about the person I'm talking to right now? Yeah, it, it would be unrecognizable, mm. right? Like, um, and, and in many ways, that's great, right? Um, and, you know, I think about it a lot, really, because, you know, most of my early stuff was just grim, like, necessity of, like, I got to figure out how to, how to have a better life. But, um, but you know, it, like, like, early on, because things had gone so poorly for me, in school, I had a 0.9 GPA when they kicked me out. I mean, I, you have to work really hard to be that bad. Right? Um, but I, 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 I knew something was wrong and I just assumed it was me. Like I just, I just assumed I was dumb and like, just, like whatever things didn't work out. Um, and what's really remarkable to me is I think about like, you know, my mentor, Kurt Fisher actually once told me, he said, you know, 
you know, it's not true. You know, you know, like we designed systems that guaranteed this would be the case for some people. Like it's just guaranteed mm. that it's going to be a bad fit. And I, I remember I was a doctoral student when he told me this. And I was so angry because I was like, you mean like the, the awful sort of heartache and, 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 and struggle that I went through as a kid, that some of that was just like by design. Right. And so for me, um, I, I always think like, I asked myself a, a different question, um, but similar to what you said, but like, I always think about like, what would I tell the 17 year old me? You know? Yeah. Like that's, that's going to climb, which I think it is probably improbable, right? Like, I, <laughs> like I, I'm not going to pretend I wouldn't go back and roll the dice, right? Like there was a lot of luck too involved and like, it's, it's, you know, it's probably not the most stable path for everyone. It's back to the theme we've been talking about. Like, like your individuality matters. It, it's not individualism. It's not selfishness, but the distinctiveness of who you are like matters. And, and if you don't know those things, then you cannot make the choices that you need to make that will give you the best chance to live the life you want to live. Like a lot of stuff you don't want to know about yourself, right? It's, it's not necessarily always good, but the, the, the sooner you can actually have an honest, accurate understanding of who you are, what motivates you, what your aptitudes are, right? And you use that, stay close to that your whole life because it's not going to fail you. Right. Because the truth is, is that even though society's told you that, like, there's only a small number of things that are meaningful and successful and worthy of your pursuit, it's not true. And like, if you make choices based on who you are, really, like there are so many pathways that can be richly rewarding and fulfilling. Um, and, and, and it's a, that's a life worth living. And so, so I, I think it's optimistic, but it does start with this understanding of who you are. Well, it's terrific. And uh, not only would the 17-year-old you surely benefit from those insights, but the people that you reach now and that you reach going forward uh, will even more. You can't – well, you're working with Hollywood, so maybe you'll figure out a way on, on film. You know, back to <laughs> back to the future four, I guess. Maybe it'll be the, the Todd go. Rose story <laughs> going The next back. Marty McFly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Todd, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, and the work that you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Todd Rose. My thanks to Todd for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.